0: It's so valuable that this is just gonna happen. And I think you know a lot of questions about VR have to do with the back end, how do you use it in the courtroom? I think most of the value is actually on the front end when you're trying to figure out what happened in a case. When you have this really neutral thing that eliminates lots of the questions that are obviously gone when you can be in that space and, and focuses you on the real issues associated with the litigation.
1: I'm Chad Maine, and this is another episode of Technically Legal, a podcast about legal innovation and legal technology. In today's episode, we talk to Chuck Fox, Director of Technical Services at Engineering Systems, Inc. We're talking to Chuck about legal teams using virtual reality. Even though the obvious focus of this podcast is on the legal industry, not all of our guests are lawyers. In fact, because my guests come from varying backgrounds and come to the legal world from different angles, it belies a point that is often discussed in the various interviews, that in this day and age, solving legal problems requires more than just lawyers. Why am I bringing this up? Because today's guest, Chuck Fox, is a molecular biologist. That's definitely a different job than being a lawyer. I talked to Chuck about the use of 3D modeling and virtual reality in legal matters. Chuck got his start in 3D modeling after he got out of Iowa State University and the University of Michigan. One of his first jobs was creating models of the human brain, and ultimately, he was hired to work on 3D modeling for the human body. So how did Chuck end up helping lawyers out? He was hired to work on a patent case that involved DNA technology, and as they say, the rest is history. He now works for Engineering System Inc., ESI for short, as a Director of Technical Services. ESI does engineering, scientific investigation, and analyses to help lawyers better understand and prove their cases through studies, models, and demonstrative evidence. Here's how Chuck describes what ESI does. So ESI is a forensic engineering company. We
0: tackle our clients' most difficult problems. So when our clients have an issue that needs to be resolved, uh, we try to give them the right answers. And so we have engineers from virtually every engineering discipline that work together on multidisciplinary teams to figure out what happened in an accident scenario. It could be a ground vehicle accident. It could be an aviation accident. It could be an explosion at a chemical plant. Uh, Our team will come in and figure out what was the cause
1: of, of that event. And tell me, what are all the different divisions of ESI and the different things the company does?
0: Lots and lots of practice groups in ESI. So uh, I won't be able to name them all off the top of my head, but for example, we have an automotive practice group that focuses on ground vehicle. We have an aviation practice group that does aviation work. We have a civil and structural group that focuses on structures and structural failures. We have a a fire and explosions group that does uh, fire analysis. And that's just a a, a sampling of the, the engineering practice group. My team's a little unique. We're referred to as the technology services practice group. And we really support all of the other practice groups. Our team members function on those multidisciplinary teams, but their focus is, or my team's focus is collecting data uh, and turning that data into something that, that means something to the stakeholder in that case. And usually we're doing that with 3D animation or virtual reality, something like that.
1: Before we dive in on how Chuck and ESI create the virtual reality worlds for lawyers, I thought it'd be helpful to have some context about how VR is used in the legal world. To do so, Chuck told me about a case in which VR was used to figure out how a tragic accident happened involving an elevator. We had a case that was really a tragic case that a number of our team
0: members were working on. It was a case where a child became entrapped in an in-home elevator system. And the child died uh, from his injuries in, in that accident. And the challenge in that, in figuring out what happened in that case, was it was an utterly unwitnessed accident, utterly unwitnessed. Mom was in the house with a child, but the child got into the elevator shaft and and the, the whole scenario that cost him his life played out inside this elevator shaft while mom was trying to get to him through an access door to the elevator. So the challenge for our engineers was to figure out what in the world happened. And so, Virtual reality was used in this case. We built a scale model, one-to-one scale model of the home. We used laser scanning to capture all the features we needed in a very accurate fashion. So we have the dimensions of everything we need down to a millimeter's accuracy. We modeled the house and built a functional elevator system in it. So Where'd
1: Where'd you build that?
0: So we did it completely virtually. So we we built it inside our computer systems at ESI. And so the elevator functioned exactly as it did in the home. You could push the buttons. You could call the elevator. The door locks out when the elevator is not at that level. And it moves at the speeds the elevator moved. That allowed our engineers to get in that elevator shaft and interact with it as if they were the child. So what we figured out in the elevator system was that there was a critical spacing between what's referred to as the hoistway door. It's, it's like a normal door in your house that would allow you access to the elevator and an accordion door that's on the front of the elevator car itself. And that space was big enough to allow a child to get between that exterior door and the front of the elevator. And then the elevator moved, it homed to the second floor. It was programmed to do that. And then the child was free to walk around in this elevator shaft. And it was when the elevator came back down that the child suffered these crash injuries that cost him his life. And so we were able to determine that by one, having accurate initial data to work with from the laser scans, and two, being able to interact with it in such a rich way in VR that we could explore it over and over and over. In the course of a a day, you could run through many, many cycles of the elevator's operations Start to determine what happened, at least eliminate things that you know couldn't have happened. And then how did that change the tide in the case? The visuals did a couple of things. They were useful in mediating that case. And that case did not go to trial. It was actually mediated to a settlement. But they have done a second thing that was that was interesting. And we actually showed those visuals at uh, two conferences. Uh, One was, I believe, right at the end of January this year, and the other one was in March. And some members of the CPSC, the Consumer Product Safety Commission, were in the audience. And they saw this presentation and since then have developed an interest in whether these home elevators are a hazard and are taking this up in terms of the potential recall of these elevator systems.
1: It's pretty interesting how Chuck and his team create these VR models. It's not unlike making a video game, but instead of creating a fantasy world, Chuck and his crew create the real world. I was lucky enough to check out some of these VR models at the ESI facility right outside of Chicago. I'd like to give a big thanks to Chuck and his team for taking the time to show me these VR models. To create them, they take measurements by laser and sometimes use drones to capture imagery, and they start with something called a point cloud. So data collection is a critical aspect of this because we
0: essentially develop the VR applications in a gaming space where, you know, gamers are creating these fantasy worlds and have characters moving through them. We're doing the same process, except we're building the actual world in these VR
1: spaces. So it's really no different than the... The designers of my kids' video game. are exactly. doing the same thing. Same That's exactly
0: product. right, except we begin typically with laser scans of a, of a space. So, for example, in that house, we took, you know, 60 or 80 laser scans at different locations in that house. And a laser scanner sits on top of a tripod and it spins around and shoots a laser out in every direction and gives you a volume of data called a point cloud. And that point cloud has, every everywhere the laser touches a surface, it records exactly the position of that surface and the color. And if you imagine like a million of these points in space, you've now painted a wall, a door, a fixture, uh, uh, the floor, the ceiling, all those features we have to less than a millimeter's accuracy. So we know these points are very accurate in space. I mean, the the point cloud is is dumb in a sense. It gives us exactly the dimensions of the space, but nothing moves. The doors don't open. uh, The things that you need to function don't function. So the next step is for us to make the point cloud into a model. And once we create that 3D model, we can have the door open. We can have, you know, features the elevator can go up and down. It can do that also very accurately if we know the part relationships. That takes some manual effort, just like the gamers when they create, you know, weapons in a game, they have to program that. We have to program how the elevator works. But once we're done, we then have an environment that you can interact with over and over and over. So let's talk
1: about the point cloud. Does it literally measure every point in a... It in does. Space?
0: Yeah, it does. It essentially hangs all these points in a three-dimensional space on a one-to-one scale. So that's what allows us to very accurately bring a space into the computer. Now, I mentioned laser scanners. We would typically use those for something like a home. We also use drones to create point clouds. So if it's a large area that we need to capture, we'll fly drones over it. You can create a point cloud from the photographs that
1: we take with the drones. So it, is the drone itself capturing the information that... The, creating a point cloud, or are you analyzing the visualizations coming from the drone and creating a point cloud? Yeah.
0: So the camera on the drone is just a typical photo camera. So it's it's snapping photographs, and if you snap those photographs with enough overlap, they need to be overlapping, and they need to be from different points of view, different angles. Then there's computer software that will allow you to photogrammetrically combine those photos and convert them into a point cloud.
1: What's an example where you've used a drone to create a, a VR? application.
0: Yeah, so typically drones. Uh, well, obviously, drones. We're using them outside. You know, those are those are outdoor scenes. So, for example, we might use a drone to capture an intersection where a ground vehicle accident happens, and then we can actually use, you know, incorporate that data into, for example, USGS data, United States Geological Survey data of a larger area, so we can have high res data that we captured with the drone at the intersection combined with the the broad scene. Uh, where something happened.
1: So once you collect all the information, you
0: plug it into the computer, what's the next step? Right. So the next step, once we have what we would refer to as the geometry of the space, once we have that, nailed down, then it's a matter of adding motion to components of that. So in a ground vehicle accident, we need to put cars in it and we need to have them move and they need to move accurately. So that's another layer of data that we'll rely upon to create that. We may have downloads from the event recorders in the vehicles that'll give us specific information about the, how the cars move. Uh, we may have simulation data that are in one of our engineering teams For example, in the automotive group, they may have used a different piece of software to actually simulate the motion of the car based upon skid marks that are on the pavement and and other pieces of evidence they have. All those data put together will give us the motion of the vehicles, and that's the next step, is essentially bringing motion into the, the system.
1: At what point has it become the, for lack of a better word, the video game where somebody can look at it and right. manipulate it? And
0: So at that stage, once we have the motion, and then I would say another kind of uh, the lysing on the cake is if we had atmospherics. So... You know, if we want to understand uh, conspicuity and what the driver of a car could see, maybe it's nighttime and we have to do some lighting and, or maybe it was foggy and we need to put some atmospherics in. We would do that. And then in VR, we can put you in the driver's seat of the car. At that point, before we've rendered any animation, before we've done anything like that, in VR, we put you in the seat and that's when it becomes the video game. Now, you're not going to be able to steer the car or control it because we want you to experience the actual accident path. We want to evaluate maybe what the driver could have seen during the accident sequence but it's much like being in a video game at that point you're experiencing
1: the accident from
0: the driver's seat
1: now is it like the VR that I'm thinking of like Oculus where you you put on a helmet you look you can turn left you can turn right and do all that exactly
0: we use the Oculus Rift as one of our tools we use the HTC Vive as well we have a lab in Atlanta where we have a wireless HTC Vive it's a fairly large space so in VR you can actually enter a one-to-one space and walk around What you're seeing is that virtual space. What you're walking around in is is our lab. It's a pretty spectacular
1: uh, event. How do you deal with creating these models and this virtual reality when the subject matter itself is gone?
0: Yeah. What do you do there? Chaotic scenes are probably the most challenging ones, and I think that's where the beauty of of the laser scans come in. And, And the laser scanners actually do two things, if I kind of expand on what I said earlier, they not only send a laser beam out and capture the points, but I said they capture color at the points. Well, the way they do that is by shooting a spherical image. So you actually have a very high resolution image of a site as well. And in a site where it's very chaotic, like after a fire, that can be some of the most valuable information you have because you have a record of this very organic, you know, chaotic space that doesn't really yield to modeling and stuff very well that you can go back and review 6 months later, a year later when the theory has maybe changed a little bit in the case, maybe causation points at something you didn't anticipate when you were on site, you can go back and review that high resolution data that is in 3D in a way that is really informative to maybe something you weren't considering when you were there poking
1: through the embers that day. I'm kind of visualizing those cars you see what Google uses to take pictures of, you know, for street view. Mm -hmm. Is that the type of cameras we're talking about? It's very similar.
0: Yeah, it's a similar technology.
1: We're going to take a second away from our talk with Chuck because I wanted to let you know at TLpodcast.com, there's a dedicated episode page for every episode of this podcast. On the episode page, you can find more information about our guests and links and more information about some of the stuff we talk about. I highly encourage you to check out Chuck's episode page because we've got some video on there showing VR in action. Also, if you want to get a hold of me or learn more about my company, Percipient, you can find me on LinkedIn or shoot me an email at cmain at percipient.co. That's C-M-A-I-N at Percipient.co. All right, let's get back to our talk with Chuck. One of the goals in using VR in legal matters is to recreate a scene or situation to fully understand what happened or what could happen. So I asked Chuck if he expected courtrooms to be equipped with VR helmets anytime soon so jurors could take advantage of VR and 3D modeling firsthand. Sounds like it probably isn't going to happen tomorrow, but VR is still very helpful in getting cases resolved. You're interested in simply taking the jurors to a
0: static location. You know, no event is going to happen per se, but maybe it's a crime scene, maybe it's an accident scene, and you just want them to visit that location. You could put them on a bus and take them there, but with VR, you could actually put headsets on the jurors and they could explore. You know, as much as they wanted in this space. We've done that in one case uh, where it was a, a pedestrian accident in a parking lot at a business, and we scanned that space modeled it, put it in VR, and it was used in a mediation. So the mediator and the parties were able to, you know, tell their story and walk around the space uh, in VR. I think the challenge with jurors is, is not as much a technical one. It's that when an event is happening and you have, you know, say 12 jurors that are independently looking at that event, you can't control what they're seeing. And they may not be looking at, you know, things that are salient, To the case. For example, in a mid-air collision, we've done a number of those cases where we put a professional pilot in the accident aircraft that have gone through the the, the mid-air collision. The pilot knows how to respond to the air traffic controller and to you know cues they're getting from the aircraft because they're a pilot. They they know what's going on. And so they can give us reliable feedback on could I or should I have seen that other plane that I'm going to collide with in this accident? When you put that head-mounted display on jurors, they don't have any idea what's going on. They really need a guided tour. And for that right now, distilling the VR experience of the professional pilot into something we can put on the screen in the courtroom is most effective. So typically what we would do, Chad, is we would put the professional pilot through the scenario, through the access scenario, and we would record their head position as as they just naturally go through the accident sequence. And then we would render an animation using that head position data. So it sort of looks like it's an animation, but it looks like it was made with a GoPro on the pilot's
1: head, you know? And that's what the pilot then testifies with in the courtroom. So you, you've said a couple of things. You said it's unlike a video game because we want you, or not you, the, you want the jurors or the arbiter of fact to see whatever occurred, the, the right. evidence as it occurred. So I'm going to put my litigator's cap back on. I think the argument then comes out of the gate, well, objection. You know, this is what you want us to see, your side of the case, Correct. be it if you're the plaintiff or the defendant, whatever it is. What are the steps you take or how do you authenticate this evidence and establish that it's reliable and can can therefore be re- relied upon by the trier effect?
0: Yeah. So that's a good point. And I think that has always been true. Right. I mean, when we've created animations of, you know, use the aviation example again, a midair collision before we started using VR in the process, it was essentially up to the animator to decide where to point the camera. And, you know, we, we consume so much data. Aviation's a great example because there's so much data in a in an aviation case. If it's a commercial flight, we've got flight data recorders that tell us everything about what that airplane was doing. We have radar data that tells us where the airplane goes. We know the time of day and we know the weather and we know all these things, right? The only thing we don't know is where the pilot was looking. And so how do you authenticate it? Well, You know, in the case of using an animator, you're sort of your last refuge. If you wanted to hide some bad fact would be to point the camera in a way that you just don't see that part of this scenario, right? But in VR, that's really not the case. You can look wherever you want to look. And so what we've created in VR, I think is truly as neutral as we can make it. We've just consumed all this data. We've put it together and it's up to the viewer. Now we put that on the expert pilot. They, like I said, generate an animation. So they're essentially in control of the camera. It's going to be their testimony that supports that animation. And so typically in court, if that expert says, you know, this is a fair, An accurate depiction of of what I think happened in the sequence. And and with VR, they say, this is actually my rendering of it. These are my eyes looking out at the world during this sequence typically comes in very smoothly. And in fact, in our experience, judges actually prefer this this VR piece because it finally authenticates that one last step of where the camera is pointed.
1: Obviously, the most common use of VR in legal today is with injury actions, be it personal or property. But there are other uses out there and some cool ones on the horizon. The only real limitation for the use of VR in the legal world is our imagination. Outside of injury and tort cases, VR is also used in patent cases and probably has a good use adjusting insurance claims, or at least the training of insurance claim handlers.
0: Patent litigation is one in which there are often very complex concepts involved in, in patents. I mean, patent laws is very complicated on its own, but then you sort of layer on, you know, some science or engineering concept that's being argued about. And 3D animation uh, is often a really valuable tool in that case. I was telling you earlier about a case we worked on where the animations actually got admitted as evidence because... The prior art patents in this case, the product had never been manufactured from those patents. And so a 3D visualization of what that patent described was the the closest thing we could come to reality uh, for use in that case. And so in that particular case, our expert engineers created this object. It was an adjustable foot pedal based upon the patent specification and claims. And then the judge said, yeah, okay, well, this should come in as evidence because this is as close as we can come to actually having the foot pedal. And in that particular case, the value, you know, typically when you're using demonstratives in a, in a case, well, or always when you're using demonstratives in a case, you know the jury gets to see them when the expert testifies with them, but you know they don't go back with the jury for deliberations. They don't. You, you have to rely on the jurors' memory of that teaching uh, when it comes to deliberations. If it's if it comes in as evidence, it goes back with the jury for deliberations, and they can they can view it again. So it it has value at that level, and of course it also has value in the appeals process because if the case is then appealed, now the animation is part of the record, and so it goes along with the appellate process, and and this particular one, the foot pedal, actually ended up in front of the U.S. Supreme Court. So that was a pretty exciting case for us. I think kind of a groundbreaking thing for
1: visuals to, to go that far in the litigation process. So I'm, I'm assuming a lot of times you're hired by either plaintiff's attorney or defense attorney that's involved in a piece of litigation. So going back to your elevator case, maybe you're hired by the plaintiff's counsel. You know, They're suing the elevator company to show what happened. Or maybe you're hired by the elevator company to Show, you know, how it couldn't have happened that way. But who are some other folks that that hire you outside of the litigation context? Either maybe it's prophylactic to preventative. To prevent against litigation or just other uses, maybe in-house counsel or something?
0: I think an area that we're excited about using VR is in the training space. And, you know, we've been interacting with some insurance companies that see VR as an avenue for training claims people. So, for example, you know, you could go to an experienced claim person could capture data at a site where... You know, maybe it's a fire that they're evaluating for causation. We could capture that data in VR. And once you have it digitally, it's permanent. You know, you you have it forever. So that can be converted then into a training module that you could train newer claims people on. Here's the kind of things you should be looking for in a fire scene or, you know, on a damaged vehicle or, you know, hail damage on a roof or, you know, things like that. So we're really excited. We haven't actually created anything in that space yet, but we're having conversations with claims teams about how might we do this. And we're getting really close, I think, to creating some of that material that, you know, the, the, the training potential for VR is just huge because it's, it's such a real experience when you're in there.
1: So it sounds like we've only scratched the surface of VR and legal, and it's already pretty cool and exciting. As I wound down with Chuck, I asked him to look in his crystal ball and tell me where he thought VR was going.
0: The future is is very hard to predict because we're just we're just scratching the surface at this point. I think there's a couple directions we're going to go with this. I think VR is going to be used more and more early on in cases. I think typically legal teams when they think about visualization and demonstratives and things like that, they're thinking about it at the end of the litigation process. How am I going to teach what I know to a fact finder, a judge, a jury, a, a mediator, uh, you name it? I think what's going to happen is you're going to see these real-time tools starting to get used very early in the process. So an interesting, for example... It's not unusual for our team to get NVR VR with a laser scan right after we take it. One is just a validation of our data. How's it look? Is it, is it a good data set? And two, to get familiar with the scene before we start to model it in our computers. We had a case where it was a, a large, I believe it was a printing press where a victim had lost his arm in, in servicing this this machine. And we had scanned it the attorney had been in the VR lab with us about 24 hours after the scan. He wasn't at the site, but got to tour the machine. And about a month later, he said, hey, can I bring my client in and put him in VR so he can explain to us what happened that day? And we, we'd never done anything like
1: this. Interesting.
0: And so he brings the client in. This was in our Atlanta wireless the lab. The person that lost the arm. Yeah, the guy that lost the arm, right? And so Scott Carlin's, our our technician in Atlanta, managed the interaction down there. I said, you know, how was it, Scott? Was he, you know, was it kind of like, you know, it seems like it could be a PTSD moment here, right? I mean, it could be pretty traumatic. And he said, no, he was... Awesome, he said. He was in there for 45 minutes. He would walk through his day on this machine while they were watching on the screen, and the attorney could question him like, "Well, didn't you do this?" And He's like, "Oh no, 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 there's a, like a hatch over here, and you can just go right down through it, and this is how you get access to here." And you know, so he was able to explain exactly how you know his injuries occurred with this machine in a one-to-one scale model of the machine. And you know, it was when he left. I said, you know, I was asking Scott, "How was it?" I mean, was he okay? And Scott said, "Oh yeah." He said he thanked me. Me, he said you know I could have never explained this accident to my attorney sitting across you know a boardroom table but VR enabled us to go
1: in that space together and I could show him what happened so, so you so, think you think that earlier on in the case during the factual investigation by the attorneys themselves they're going to start using yes, VR it's so valuable that this is just going to happen and i think you know a lot of questions about VR have to do
0: with the back end how do you use it in the courtroom i think most of the value is actually on the front end when you're trying to figure out what happened in a case When you have this really neutral thing that eliminates lots of the questions that are obviously gone when you can be in that space and and focuses you on the real issues associated with the litigation.
1: Is price such that it's coming down, so it's, it's less expensive, so oh yeah. you, can, you can bring it on earlier in a case. To, you know, the, that's the beauty of, the, you know, the
0: gamers are making it inexpensive for us, and that, that's the beauty of that. I mean, this is probably the first time in the visualization industry that I've seen something come along that's actually inexpensive. You know, you can build a computer that's wildly capable of doing real-time visualization and a head-mounted display for five to $7,000. And at that point, you have what you need to display it. You know, laser scanning uh, is something we do routinely. So, you know, some of those initial views, like the printing press I was talking about, and the the guy that lost his arm, you know, it's a few thousand dollars to do that laser scanning process and a few thousand dollars to get in the lab and interact with it. And and the value of that experience is, is enormous.
1: Wow, well, that's great, Chuck. Appreciate your time here today. If people want to learn more about ESI, or get a hold of you, where they find you. So check out ESI on our
0: website. It's www.engsys.com. Www.engsys, Feel free to reach out to me. You know, if you get questions, give me a call. I'm always happy to entertain any questions about this topic.
1: that's it for another episode of technically legal as always we really appreciate you listening If you want to subscribe you can catch us on most major podcasting platforms like stitcher google apple spotify etc etc if you like us enough i hope you leave us a nice review if you want to get a hold of me you can email me at cmain at percipient.co that's c m-a-i-n at percipient.co until next time thanks for listening this has been another episode of technically legal